Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, the CEO of the Macro Compass, and as always with me, Andreas Steno, the CEO of Steno Research, probably also the head of the canteen and everything else in my little company here. Alf, um, what an end to the week. Silicon Valley Bank is no more. Uh, at least the um, local authorities have now taken the keys, basically. So uh, why don't we spend most of this weekly podcast on digesting this story? Uh, so what I find interesting, first of all, is to try and explain to our audience why this is even possible. Uh, and you are basically, in my opinion, the perfect cast to explain us what's going on beneath the surface in a bank treasury. Uh, because essentially, we need to figure out what's going on in the treasury of the Silicon Valley Bank to understand why they are no more. Uh, and Elf, if we look at Silicon Valley Bank, um, they have a, um, a pretty uh, like firm financing structure tilted towards deposits. And those deposits were to a large extent, invested in bonds. So why is that happening? Why are banks buying bonds in their liquid portfolio? So Andreas, uh, after the great financial crisis, uh, a new regulation unfolded to make sure that banks held enough liquid assets on the asset side of the balance sheet to meet stressed deposit outflows. In case there is a bank run or something similar, banks were supposed to own a lot of liquid assets to be able to service these deposits. This regulation um, comes to fruition after the great financial crisis, both in the US, in Europe, but also in the UK, in Sweden, actually uh, in most developed markets. Uh, the ratio that banks need to respect is called liquidity coverage ratio. It needs to be 100%. And it basically means that you need to have enough liquid assets on the asset side to meet a stressed outflow of deposit. Um, so what qualifies for high quality, uh, um, high quality liquid assets? Well, you guess it, that's cash, uh, which for banks means bank reserves mm. at the domestic central bank and bonds. And here comes the trick, because the regulators effectively ensured that government bonds and also the most liquid side of the corporate bond space and even mortgage-backed securities were, from a regulatory perspective, treated exactly as reserves at the central bank. They faced no haircuts. They were considered as liquid as cash when it comes to this regulatory ratio to respect, which means banks were faced with a choice. Either keep reserves at the central bank or buy a portfolio of bonds. Because from a regulatory perspective, you would be treated exactly the same. But obviously, bonds yield more mm. than reserves at the central bank. So you guess where I'm going, right? Banks started buying bonds to a very large extent and filled their investment portfolios with these bonds. Bonds obviously beat treasuries. They run interest rate risk for the large uh, part of it. Corporate bonds, mortgage-backed securities, they also have credit risk, Andreas, but they, they come with risks, right? So if you buy billions of bonds, and to give you an idea of the size, because of this regulation, roughly today, about 15% of the asset side of, an, of a bank is invested into high-quality liquid assets. That's a pretty large amount. We're talking about trillions in investment portfolios in banks in Europe and in the US being invested in bonds because of this reason. These investments come with volatility, interest rate volatility and credit spread volatility, right? And obviously, if you own so much of these bonds, the volatility can become pretty large. 
And here is when regulators decided to sweeten the pill by forcing banks to own all these bonds, but also helping them from the accounting side. Mm. So the PL's wings that come from interest rate volatility or credit spread volatility, and we'll talk about that because you can hedge mm. the interest rate volatility, which Silicon Valley Bank didn't really do very well. <laughs> but the volatility, instead of hitting your profit and loss straight away, can hit either your capital position or it, it doesn't hit anything. And this is the trick, really, because there are two accounting categories. One is called available for sale, and the other is called hold to maturity. They have different names sometimes if you go to different jurisdictions, yeah. but same principle, right? Available for sale means you can turn over this bond book. You can move from a treasury to a corporate bond. You can be pretty flexible about it. But the volatility of credit spread or interest rates will go through your capital position. So your profit and loss won't change if interest rates will go up and down, but your capital will change. Okay, that's something. But if you really want to have no impact whatsoever, which is what Silicon Valley Bank chose to do, you can park your bonds in a whole to maturity account. Yeah. And in that account, the bonds are priced at amortized cost, which basically means any volatility coming from interest rates or credit spreads does not show up neither in PL nor in capital. And else This is not necessarily an issue in times of no stress in markets. But as soon as you get a flight of deposits, you basically start to realize these losses even though you aimed at not doing it. And that's exactly what happened here, right? That's exactly what happened. So let's, let's walk back and think of the fact that Silicon Valley Bank had a very large amount of bonds on their portfolio, mostly booked in whole to maturity and also <laughs> chose to cut away all their interest rate hedges in 2022. Basically, all interest rate hedges were off. All treasuries in the world, and I run a large investment portfolio for a large European treasury, so I'm speaking from experience here. All large bank treasuries in the world hedge their interest rate risk. And the reason is pretty simple. If you don't, The volatility can be so large that the moment this actually is met with some deposit outflows, you start having serious problems. It's just poor risk management not to hedge your interest rate risk on such large regulatory-driven investment portfolios. You must have them. The regulation tells you so. They give you the accounting tools to kind of navigate the vol. It's up to you to do also some basic risk management of interest rate risk of this portfolio. Silicon Valley Bank didn't do that. And you touched upon the deposit base, which is very important. It's the second leg of this crisis. Yeah. Because I think you have a statistics that tells us how much the funding was concentrated at Silicon Valley Bank. 89% concentrated around deposits. Um, so... This is obviously a natural funding source for most banks, but it's very rare to see 89% funding based on deposits. And if we look a bit beneath the surface of these um, deposits, they were probably very concentrated in size around um, venture capital-backed tech startups. Uh, so tech startups that had raised money and um, 
parked them at the Silicon Valley Bank until they had to use them to pay salaries, etc. Very rarely um, a business with a running positive cash flow at the time. Uh, and therefore, they were obviously prone to large risks should a venture capital fund, for example, start telling their um, portfolio companies to move the money to another bank. And I think very simply speaking, that was what started happening this week. Uh, a couple of venture capital funds started telling their portfolio companies to find another bank. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, someone obviously revealed uh, that the venture capital funds pitched this idea to their portfolio companies. And then the snowball effect is there. Um, and the snowball effect is, is obviously much more... Um, risky per nature when you have a funding model that is 89% based on deposits from these um, tech startups. So, I mean, in hindsight, um, <laughs> it's almost an hilar a hilarious case, um, sorry to say it, um, because the risk management here is is just, just disastrous. Um, and interestingly, even JP Morgan and other big banks, they told that this bank was run well. Um, they had um, buy equity um, suggestions on this stock just two weeks ago. They even defended it as uh, as late as, as yesterday. Um, it, it makes you think, uh, honestly, uh, and I'm not impressed, to say it the least, um, of the coverage of this bank from some of the equity analysts covering it. Uh, probably they don't know how to run a treasury book. Yes. Yes, and uh, I'm, uh, I want to debunk a couple of theories going around. The first is, this is the Fed's fault. <laughs> Raising interest rates has caused the first collapse of a bank and other banks will collapse. Okay, we'll cover in the second part of the podcast the story of the canner in the coal mine, yes mm. or no, Andreas, but let me tell you this. I saw some charts going around from uh, Zero Hedge, I think, uh, showing the unrealized losses at the four largest bank in the US, unrealized bond losses, mm. right? And this chart, like, it's, it looks gigantic. Okay, bullshit. I'm calling bullshit on that because JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and the others are doing interest rate hedges. Yeah. They are. Which means you're showing one side of the coin. You're showing the losses on the bond portfolio. But if I am a treasury department address and I own a bazillion of bonds like JP Morgan Treasury does, mm. I have interest rate risk on these bonds, but then I pay swaps yes. against them. So you have a maximum so hedge interest rate. gain from the so swaps. Yeah. You are not showing me the lag, which is the gains in the swaps. Mm. So, I mean, for people that are not very familiar with interest rate uh, duration, uh, risk, and edges, it's very simple. If you buy a treasury bond, um, you have interest rate risk if, if uh, interest rates move higher, mm. right? So how do you hedge that? You simply enter into an, a derivative agreement called the swap where you pay fixed interest rates and you receive floating interest rates against that. So that is basically the offsetting hedge against the interest rate risk you're running into the treasury bond. Yep. And these swaps are very much in the money because you pay the fixed interest rate in 2021, say, 1.5% for 10 years, Andreas, and now it was at 4%. So when you mark-to-market that swap, it's massively in the money, and it, perfects, it almost perfectly offsets the treasury um, decline. We can talk about the difference between treasury yields and swap yields, those are swap spreads. It's the residual between treasury yields and the hedge, which is a swap, that hasn't really moved that much. Mm. 
And that's really the resulting net gain or loss that is sitting in most of these large bank treasuries. It's nothing. It's not that chart that you see on Zero, on zero Hedge. That is, that is bullocks. Yeah, it is. Uh, but not for Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. they decided not to pay in the, uh, in the swap space against their bond holdings. Um, and I mean... I've been working on the sell side of uh, of this equation for many years, uh, which means that I've met loads of bank treasuries, and you obviously always debate bonds on an asset swap basis, um, since that is the sort of the re relevant measure uh, when you look at it uh, from a prudent perspective in a treasury. I'd say uh, maybe you could have. Um, toured with another slide deck for Silicon Valley Bank uh, without having to <laughs> consider the swap. Um, but um, in any case, um, bizarre story. And um, let us just uh, let's just remind our audience that we are uh, recording on the Saturday. So, I mean, something can still happen uh, during the sure. weekend here. Um, of course, things um, happen in weekends. Uh, as I tweeted yesterday morning uh, on the Friday, a bank always goes bankrupt Friday afternoon uh, around close time because then you have 48 hours to figure out what to do. Um, so right. a lot can happen this weekend. Um, Silicon Valley Bank can be bought by another bank. I would doubt it by myself, but it can. Um, so so let's see what happens. Um, but Andreas, yeah. let's talk about, I mean, we, we explained the technicals, let's say, of this insolvency crisis where you have a very poorly run uh, investment portfolio with no hedges. Um, you have a very concentrated funding base, right? That can it's, it's very prone to bank runs by the mm. very definition of having a lot of deposits by high ticket um, tech deposits and your funding base isn't diversified at all. The combination is obviously disastrous. When bank runs start to happen, you have bonds which are underwater and the losses are too large because your portfolio was too large and it wasn't hedged. And all of a sudden you're forced to liquidate and you go mm. under. This is the mechanics, but I know that there are more uh, topics to discuss here, starting from the management of the bank, because I know, I know that you have a story on the CEO, there's a story on the CRO, so let's talk about moral hazard as a topic here. Well, well, first of all, um, and it is public data, obviously. Uh, you can just go on your Bloomberg terminal to check it out. Uh, we've seen selling of equity from the CEO and the CFO over the past two weeks. And I know that, uh, of course, a CEO cannot just sell equity, decide on, in the morning to sell equity during the day. But there is a process. But, I mean, obviously, since they've been selling quite high stakes over the past few weeks, they probably knew that <laughs> at least the... Um, the return of the equity would probably drop. Um, let, let's put it like that. Uh, it's fair to assume that they uh, saw something coming to a certain extent, not necessarily what actually ended up being a closure. But um, that's interesting in itself that they started selling equity over the past few weeks here. And on top of that, um, you point to them not having a chief risk officer in place currently, um, the CRO, um, which is quite interesting for a bank uh, with an assets uh, size worth of, is it 220 billion there about US dollars? But also interesting that they've constantly kept themselves just below the bar uh, of the regulatory threshold of 250 billion. Um, if you're above 250 billion, Elf, all of the stuff around liquidity coverage ratios, etc., yeah. kicks in. So let's explain yes. that. <laughs> So that's uh, something I found very interesting, that two things. The management of this bank lobbied very hard in the past three to five years to try to raise the thresholds 
of assets under management for a bank of balance sheet size, let's say, that exempt you from strict regulation, from the stricter side of regulation. They lobbied hard to make sure it was increased as much as possible. Okay, so there are different layers of how regulation becomes strict depending on your balance sheet size, right? And the biggest so-called systematically important banks in the US are the one with the heaviest, heaviest layers of regulation of all. Silicon Valley Bank with, I think, a little bit more than 200 billion as balance sheet size, but not 250 billion and not an inch higher than that and not getting closer to that. I think maybe on purpose, I can't prove it. Of course. <laughs> but 250 billion is the amount that basically allows you to have that layer of regulation where stress tests are basically non-existent and where LCR ratios, HQLA regulation, all that strict liquidity regulation that we were talking about before doesn't kick in. Because Andreas, if you're a larger bank, you also get stress tests on your interest rate risk. You cannot run a portfolio like that with that amount of interest rate risks unless you are just big enough, but not that big enough to be exempt from the layer of regulation that exactly checks that out yep. for you. And, you know, this is, this is uh, one of the things that makes me so freaking upset. Um, we have made sure that large banks are heavily, heavily regulated. I've worked in one. Trust me, guys, it's a nightmare uh, working <laughs> in a large bank. It's layers and layers of regulation. We have made sure that the return on equity of large banks is lower because regulation mm. trumps everything else. But then we still today discuss basically blanket bailouts and moral hazard at best when it comes to smaller banks, which we are seeing still being important for certain corners of the economy. And that is moral hazard at its best, and I don't like it. But Alfonso, let me say something now, uh, and I'm a bit sad that I don't have my tinfoil hat in the studio, um, because if you're deemed a systemically important bank, so let's say you're above the 250 billion uh, threshold in the US, I would also argue that you have a de facto bailout in place as a yeah. consequence of it. Um, that's at least how it works in Europe to a large extent. If you're deemed a systemically important bank, you are basically told by politicians that you will be bailed out in case of emergency. Yeah. Um, the question here is whether a bank just below the threshold will be bail, bailed out or not. And my take is that they should not be bailed out uh, since they obviously don't qualify for a bailout from a regulatory perspective, if you use my rule of thumb. But secondly, I'm not ruling a bailout out, out, out. That sounded wrong, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Since it is the house bank of yeah. venture capitalists and other people from Silicon Valley with very, very strong connections to the Democrats in the D.C., this would be really bad, Andreas. Like the rules exist because 250k FDIC threshold limit insurance is a very clear rule and easy to understand. This is a good situation where to realize that any money parked in a US bank account above 250k is not your money, 
It's an unsecured liability yes. of the bank. This is how money works, guys, whether we like it or we don't like it. This bank had no risk management whatsoever. And I think, to a certain extent, almost, as you suggest, the political incentive to gamble, literally, and take ridiculous amount of risks on the asset side. And its depositors, by the way, enjoyed, I should say, quite some decent treatment because this bank had very lax lending standards as well. <laughs> when you have that concentrated funding depositor uh, tech side of, of the equation in your liabilities, you are going to be very, uh, how can I say, friendly to your depositors, right? Because they are your business. It's too concentrated. And so you're going to lend against the collateral of their VC-funded tech IPOs at 100x mm. uh, earnings, right? And so you're going to use that collateral and, and make, make, you know, it's fine and you're going to lend against it. So depositors, of course, had a lot of benefits being depositors of this bank. The bank, on the other hand, had a lot of moral hazard, basically gambling uh, and taking a lot of risks. You might be right that in the end they go for a bailout, but it just sends the very wrong signal again, that even if you're not a systemically important bank, you still can basically ignore basic prudential risk management and get away with it. And I don't think that's the right message to send. No. So first option from a bailout perspective is obviously for the local department of the Federal Reserve to bail them out with a loan. Um, yeah. They had a loan of $15 billion at the San Francisco Fed already ahead of this run towards the uh, last part of last week. And that was probably about as much as they could get. Uh, feasibly speaking. Uh, it was one-fifth of the overall balance sheet exposure of the San Fran Fed. Um, it wouldn't be prudent for a local department of a Federal Reserve to <laughs> add exposure to something that is already 20% of the total exposure. <laughs> so I think from that perspective, um, it was very unlikely that the local uh, Federal Reserve Department would, um, would bail them out. Then obviously the next question is whether politicians in D.C. will now step in. Um, so far only local authorities are involved on paper at least. Uh, and obviously I wouldn't rule that out. Um, but in any case, it would be a very bad signal to, to send. Um, question, question here is, do we have other banks below the threshold with a similar business model? Could very well be. I haven't checked all of the banks in the US. Um, no, yeah. doing some work here as well. But we should maybe talk about... Uh, market reactions to that yeah. first, and then uh, let's chat about other banks because the spillover risks, I think, and the systemic risks are uh, connected to market reactions in the, in the medium term. So let's talk maybe about the spillovers first, and then let's close with markets, Andreas. What do you say? In, in terms of spillovers, um, well, you can already see it uh, on the exchange that even JP and City. Uh, they suffer from spillovers from this, at least from an equity perspective. Is that fair? Well, I agree with you, Alf, that those banks above the 250 uh, regulatory threshold, they run much more prudent risk management than what we see at Silicon Valley Bank, without a doubt. Uh, so I, I don't really fear true contagion to banks like that. Let me just be clear about that. I don't think that's a feasible scenario. But... Obviously, what we don't know 
yet is whether there is a spider web of interconnectivity in the interbank lending markets uh, that we need to address um, from this Silicon Valley Bank. Um, but I would argue that it is of a size that is manageable. Um, yeah. The uh, interbank lending market is used to be very large mm. before the great financial crisis, and it's now much less, in, much less, let's say, big and systematically important. What's big is the repo market, yeah. obviously. So the thing about the repo market is that it's collateralized um, mostly by treasuries. Uh, so generally speaking, I think that line of contagion is uh, pretty much. Uh, you know, of a small size. What makes me worry a bit more is A, the behavior of depositors. So if you're a depositor now in a small regional bank in the US, mm. exactly the kind of bank you were talking about before, you know, assets under management, balance sheet size, 100 billion, 200 billion, what do you do now? Yeah. I, I mean, say you have, I don't know, $5 million parked on a deposit on uh, in a regional bank, you have all the incentives in the world to flee, right now. Yeah. I'd say, uh, which 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 is what you you obviously want to avoid as a regulator. Um, yeah, yeah. So the incentive is already there from a, a herd behavior perspective, mm. right? So uh, that's uh, that's something that I would keep a close eye on. The other thing is that the incentive scheme is corroborated by the fact that you can buy T-bills at 5% today. Yes, <laughs> That's the second leg of the incentive schemes. Like you get the money out and you can choose to go to a systematically important bank like JP Morgan. So, you know, it's just a small bank to large bank flow of deposits or you can just take deposits out of the banking system and put them in money market funds or T-bills and actually make more money in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and even though the money will not disappear from the financial system, it will move from low tier to top tier um, deposits um, in, in sort of the banking ranking system, if you know what I mean. Uh, meaning that almost no, no matter what here, uh, it seems feasible to expect a deposit flow from smaller banks to larger banks, whether it's indirect or direct. Yeah, I tend to agree on that. And so it all comes to idiosyncratic situations in small regional banks. So if there was some other bank that had a very concentrated high ticket funding base, which had an asset uh, management, an investment portfolio, ALM management, which was badly done, they would be the next target, mm. I think. But we're talking idiosyncratic issues when it comes to large banking sector issues. Uh, the liquidity of the large, systematically important balance, balance sheet, um, ba sorry, bank's balance sheet is much better now than it was before the great financial crisis. Yeah. Uh, regulation is so, it's so binding on this thing. What worries me instead at the large banking um, scale is the exposure to leveraged real estate products. Mm -hmm which was not the reason why Silicon Valley Bank went down, although their mortgage-backed security portfolio took a massive hit. But broadly speaking, you see Blackstone defaulting on a 500 million plus uh, CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed security, that means. Yeah. So there are loans on uh, offices and stores and all of that backing that security. And it makes you think that between 2014 and 2021, Banks were looking for yields. 
desperately on these portfolios. So you had the regulation, Andreas, that said, buy a bunch of bonds. You have to have so much of your balance sheet in, in reserves, in bonds. Reserves yield you nothing mm-hmm. because central banks kept rates at zero for seven to eight years, basically for a decade, negative in Europe even, and which means you, you were incentivized to look down the, the let's say, regulatory-friendly <laughs> investments that made some returns. Real estate. And real estate backed securities actually qualified for that. RMBS, CMBSs. To a certain extent, I think I remember end of 2019, the discussion in the European banking system was, can I actually buy some part of the portfolio that doesn't qualify for this liquidity regulatory thing? Shall I buy some CLOs? Shall I buy some leveraged loans just to add some return to the portfolio, even if it waters down the liquidity? you're now looking at the real estate market, which is frozen at best. And it makes me wonder whether that is really the systemic risk you should ever yeah. look at. And, and if we look beneath the hood of the real estate market, I think it's important to uh, make a distinction between commercial real estate and uh, like housing. Um, commercial real estate is doing worse. Uh, on most metrics that I track. And what I can say also from anecdotal evidence is that I've um, worked in in real estate private equity in in Europe. And one of the things that a lot of counterparts love about real estate private equity and um, constructions uh, in bond space that you mentioned, Elf, is that volatility is sort of artificially lower than it should be since it is an illiquid asset class that you cannot decide on yourself. Uh, from a pricing perspective, to a large extent, in times of complete calm, you can just set the price yourself to a large extent. It will be yeah. um, it will be decently uh, easy to do that, and volatility looks like nothing um, yeah. on these things. So my personal take is that there is a lot to study when it comes to understand how the banking system works and where the vulnerabilities are. Um, I don't think liquidity is a vulnerability um, no. for the broader big-sized banking system, exposure to some illiquid asset classes accumulated during a low interest rate period, yes, that could be something instead. And especially the commercial real estate, as you're saying, Andreas. But let's chat markets yeah. for five to ten minutes. What do we make of this from a market perspective? Buy, buy, buy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I joked with one of my clients, uh, if we get a bailout, then I think we would actually get a pretty decent rally on the back of it. Uh, but of course, as of now, we don't have a, a, a clear bailout of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, what, I, what I find interesting here is to look at the equity market on a sector-by-sector basis to sort of address whether there are pockets of strength left or whether you should just stay off. Um, and I'm not overly convinced that uh, this is enough to prompt a broad-based sell-off across all sectors. Um, I think there are sectors with clear risks linked to the story unfolding. Financials, it makes sense, it's obvious. Um, But real estate is another good example of something that could take a contagious hit as a consequence of this story. While at the same time, we keep getting pretty decent job numbers. I know that they're backwards looking, but we also continue uh, seeing pretty decent consumption numbers. So from a relative perspective, I would lean towards, in the very short uh, term here, towards consumption-heavy 
equity sectors and um, lean uh, negative on financials, real estate, everything linked to this story. Because what we still need to emphasize is that from an employment perspective, this venture capital tech sector is a complete nothing burger. Um, so that would be my take right now. Um, it's kind of what happened during uh, the late hours in, in, in Friday trading as well uh, from, from a relative perspective in the equity market. And then on rates, oh boy, I mean, <laughs> are, are we suddenly back discussing whether the Fed will, will commence a huge cutting cycle already just after the summer break? Um, could be. Oh, oh. So, of course, again, it's Saturday uh, when we are recording. It's impossible to know whether we're going to have a bailout, uh, whether we're not going to have a bailout, whether depositors are going to freak out at a small bank basis and cause some ripple effects on small banks. What are the reverberations on the tech space and the crypto space, by the way? Yes. Because as we speak, USDC uh, is unpegging pretty rapidly. Uh, it's trading at 90 cents. Uh, for instance, right? So you can, you can discuss all the spillovers that happen or not. What I think, looking at it from my perspective, is that the Federal Reserve will not deem these as systematically important. Yes. At least in the first instance. I maintain that my base case is that this, does not, this is not a liquidity spillover that can go all the way through big banks from a liquidity perspective. Mm -hmm. But in the first instance, even if I'm wrong, Andreas, I don't think the Federal Reserve will consider this anywhere close to systematically important so much to affect their monetary policy stance. Yep. And look, I mean, we have CPI coming on Tuesday, so that could change the picture completely. And CPI comes very weak, and wage growth has been slowing down, um, according to the numbers. And, you know, and, and participation rate has gone up a little bit. And so the Fed could say, you know what? We said we're data dependent. We see some slowdown in wage growth, some labor supply coming back online. Let's say inflation comes in a bit weaker, then it will do 25 basis points. How the market interprets this as, oh my God, they're freaking out, they can't hike anymore, and we're going to price in cuts straight away. Yes. It's total schizophrenia uh, out there, the way I see it. I mean, we're moving from 6% terminal rate, and we have to keep rates there for two years to the Fed's going to cut in July. We closed on Friday with almost a cut being priced in July. Guys, is it 6% or a cut in July? And is Silicon Valley Bank enough to make the Fed move their attention from macro data dependency to systemic risks? Yep. The answer to that, to that question is, I think, no. That is not enough. Mm -hmm. Question here, Elf. This Silicon Valley Bank, given all of the things that we've revealed in this podcast on a lack of prudency in risk management, a very heavily tilt in the funding model towards concentrated big ticket deposits from VC-backed tech companies. Is it a canary in the coal mine for sort of the broader market, given that monetary policy is tightening and the growth of money is clearly tightening as well? Yeah. So is this ultimately all about money and is Silicon Valley Bank the first signs the first time we get that the money growth is no longer supporting credit uh, and, and so on and so forth. I'm tempted to say yes, 
on that story, since if we look at various broad money measures, and now I am at risk of increasing your blood pressure, <laughs> but no matter whether you look at M1, M0, M2, M3, M4, M5, M6, whatever, in the US, money growth is now negative year on year. Um, that happens very rarely. Yeah. Um, it happens occasionally if we look at, say, decades of time series data, but it happens very rarely. And usually when we have a negative growth of money, no matter how you measure money, it is typically correlating to larger risks of financial stress in one way or the yeah. other. Uh, and could this be the first hint of that? I think that's a fair assumption. So I'm um, not going to make the link between Silicon Valley Bank and the drop in money. Uh, I am going to back you when I measure both real economy money creation and financial money creation. They're both negative uh, and trending even more negative, yes. which is not good. That is correct. Is Silicon Valley Bank um, the first big credit event, let's say, that is driven by that negative money growth? We just discussed it, and I think it's mostly driven by moral hazard, bad risk management, and a terrible business model in the first place with yep. you know some moral hazard here and there. But the issue here, Elf, and that is why I, I find it an interesting case anyway, idiots tend to survive when the money growth is very high. That's true. Uh, so that so, so true. You, 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 you start revealing who's swimming naked as soon as you remove money. That is correct. So from that perspective, I agree that Silicon Valley Bank saw a major influx of deposits exactly at the time where any VC and any tech company would IPO at 100x earnings, uh, 50x earnings, whatever, right? So that, that was exactly the moment where the business model of Silicon Valley Bank grew in size and in idiocy uh, with hindsight, right? So yes, uh, th now you remove all of that and clearly some of, of these, um, or, or shall I say caveat emperor, right? So um, is it caveat emptor? I'm, I'm not sure, mate. I, I try to sound smart with Latin, but yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let me go back to my English. Um, so look, who's swimming naked at the end of the day? Drying credit and drying financial money at the same time definitely shows up somewhere. I still think my top candidate is um, the real estate market. Still, my money is still on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I tend to agree. Um, I left real estate private equity for a reason late last year. So <laughs> I think, I think um, that is kind of the best way of showcasing that you put your money where your mouth is in in, in this yeah, sense. So, um, Elf, to sum it all up, um, this case is idiosyncratic from the perspective that they, for example, took the decision not to hedge duration risks of their bond holdings. Yeah. Uh, that is as about as idiotic as it gets, or at least it's like spinning the roulette, right? Um, it's like going on a casino um, and you're basically betting um, based on your depositors' money, right? By the end of the day, not pretty. Uh, secondly, this could be a hint that money growth reveals who's swimming naked from a credit perspective. Could be the first sign of that. But typically, I'd argue that we at least have a few quarters ahead of us where we still need to figure out exactly uh, what's going on in credit space before the ultimate 
showdown. Uh, if that is like, uh, and that is why I was tempted to use this Bear Stearns versus Lehman uh, analogy, yeah. uh, even though Bear Stearns was obviously at least seen in real uh, time dollar value, a much, much bigger bank than Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. Um, well, Andreas, let's say the summary is indeed that this is in an idiosyncratic event driven by poor risk management, concentrated funding side, um, moral hazard, and so on and so forth. It is an idiosyncratic event, but it could spill over into other regional banks, especially when it comes to, to depositors' behavior. Right? Yes. When it comes to large systemic banking crisis risks, I am a bit more hesitant to um, extrapolate mm. that what happened in Silicon Valley Bank can happen at JP Morgan, for example. Um, there is a lot to say and to analyze, and I hope that I've helped a bit the audience here with um, trying to get them to understand how regulation affects banks and what banks are actually safer than others. But Elf, if our audience wants to figure out more about these bank regulations and how it impacts both the credit market uh, and various equity sectors, where do they find more about your work? I am about to release um, today, uh, which is Sunday when the podcast gets released, a deep dive into Silicon Valley Bank and broader uh, banking industry in the US to assess whether this is a banking crisis or not. It's on themacrocompass.com. You just subscribe um, there and you'll be able to read that article and everything else I push out. And Andreas, where do they find you? <laughs> I will not try and compete with you on financial regulation and uh, high quality uh, liquid asset portfolios because um, no one's better at unpacking that exact part of the financial system than, than you, my friend. But what I do track on a running basis is the broader money growth, uh, the broader liquidity measures and, and all that uh, being born and raised in macro strategy. Uh, and, and as I said, I think it is of relevance to track such measures on an ongoing basis from here, since this could be the first hint of negative money growth revealing who's swimming naked or not. And uh, you will find everything uh, on global liquidity on stenoresearch.com. What we do here on the macro trading floor is um, sharing with you guys high-level thoughts, uh, for instance, on Silicon Valley Bank and the banking crisis, but pay a visit to the Macro Compass and Standard Research and you'll find much more. With that said, Andreas, I hope next week we can uh, lay back again and uh, assess markets and macro from a more relaxed angle. I don't think so. <laughs> next week will be again fireworks. Mm. But uh, we'll help the crew here at the macro trading floor to uh, dissect what happens. Yes, and next week we will present you with three reasons why you need to buy dog coins in this environment. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> speak to you in seven days from now. <laughs> Ciao, guys. Bye.